welcome to the Kenyan Yoga Podcast. You may know us for Ashtanga, but we are reluctant to stay in our Ashtanga box, rather, as well as bringing to you interviews with those Ashtanga teachers you already know and love, we hope you might allow us to introduce you to other people we have found inspiring and interesting along our own path. So many of these have some background in yoga, but this is not a prerequisite. Instead, what we're looking for is original and inspiring thinkers, compassionate teachers, those uniquely accomplished in their field, whatever that might be. And to that end, we spend a lot of time planning and producing the episodes. And we have a whole back catalogue of these ready for you to explore if you just started to follow us. We're also happy to accept donations, obviously, and you can find us at keyonyoga.com for that. If you have found this work useful, then please rate us on iTunes. And today's guest is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Originally introduced to me by a friend and colleague, Laura Perro of Ashtanga Limoges in France. Kimberly immediately grabbed my interest. That is to say, she pulls no punches. She's dynamic and a powerful example of what feminine energy can be. Indeed, what she calls the importance of having predator energy also in one's life. And you have to listen to understand that fully. For as we talk about a great deal, it's easy to use yoga practices as escapism in their passive aspect as withdrawal from a conflict, lack of need for self-expression, or even having no expression or preferences at all. This, according to Kimberly, is deeply imbalanced and her book, a great book, Call to the Wild, addresses our need for actually doing this work in the world. And in it, in the book, Call for the Wild, called To the Wild, <laughs> clear and lucid explanations of complex theories stand out for me personally as well. A must read, really, for anyone interested in addressing trauma through somatic experiencing, the work of Peter A. Levine, understanding meaning of co-regulation. This is Stephen Porges, who will be interviewing in his polyvagal theory on the podcast later. Or the four modes of attachment, as John Bowlby states in his theories. Anyway, the episode contains a great deal and warrants a re-listen as well as perhaps a part two on our part. I hope you enjoy it as much as I think we both did. Welcome, Kimberly, to the Keen on Yoga podcast. Welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, Kimberly and Johnson. Is that Thank right? Did I, say, did I say it right? I don't usually yes. say people's whole names. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, the only reason my middle name is in there is because my name is such a common name that I had to throw my middle name in there. So there's some differentiation. Johnson is, is common, but Kimberly isn't that common. Not in England anyway. And, and hmm. you know, okay. in Europe, maybe in the, in the States. Um, so you're coming from California today, right? Yes. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Okay. And I'm Kind of like, actually, I was turned on to you by someone, a friend of mine who's in the Ashtanga kind of community. Oh. And uh, yeah, and uh, and then she also said, just by way of introduction, that you did actually practice Ashtanga yoga, particularly, you know, not only yoga, but Ashtanga yoga uh, at some point in your life. I don't know whether you still do, so I can't say in the past. But um, do you want to, I mean, it's a ostensibly a yoga podcast still, Ashtanga yoga podcast. So do you want to just give your history on a little, little bit about Ashtanga before we launch into our... I'll stop it today on your book. Sure. Uh, well, I started yoga in 1993. I started Vini Yoga um, in the studio in my town. The, actually, all the Krishnamacharya lineage teachers were in one building. So Tim Miller and the Shtanga Yoga teacher was together with Roger Cole. And Iyengar teacher was together with Trisha Riley, who's a Vini Yoga teacher. Um, they eventually separated and each got their own spaces. Um, but that studio is actually where some of those early 90s recordings are with um, Chuck, Mati, Richard, Tim Miller, 
I think Nancy Goodfellow's in those recordings too. Oh, wow. Um, where, where is that? It's, uh, well, it's not there anymore, but it's in Solana Beach, California. It's, it, the studio's gone now. Um, but I actually weirdly live on that, pretty much on that same street again right now. So that was almost 30 years ago now, but I found myself circled back here. Yeah, yeah that happens. <laughs> it does happen. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I started out in Vinny Yoga. Of course, I didn't know anything about the styles of yoga. I just went to take a yoga class, but it ended up, I ended up in a great place. And then that evolved. Um, I studied Vinny Yoga for about seven years. And then I think just because of my, I was, I'm young, I was young and I, um, most of the people were like 40 years older than me in the classes. And I think I just, I was a dancer too. And I s sort of segued from dance into yoga full time. Uh, so then I started studying like vinyasa, Iyengar based vinyasa in New York. I studied at Jiva Mukti. I studied at Om Yoga Center. Um, I went back to India for a second trip. And when I came back, um, I had been hearing all about this character, Richard Freeman. And the way everyone talked about him, it seemed like he lived in a cave. So I thought, well, I can never meet this guy. But then when I found out that he actually lived in Colorado and he had a studio and I could actually meet him, I got in my car and drove for 20 hours to arrive at 3.30 Sunday Mysore. Marched right up to him, told him which postures I had trouble with, asked him about my knee. Never got that much nerve up again after that first day. And uh, I was, after that first class, I just knew there's something different happening here. And I wasn't so interested in the Ashtanga Vinyasa series, although I did practice them for about five years. I was really just interested in the meta set that Richard represents of like, it felt like, oh, this is the context in which all of these forms live. And um, I've always loved Sanskrit and loved chanting. And um, so, yeah, I was with, I was at the yoga workshop for five years. In 2006, I moved to Brazil, uh, had a baby the following year. And yoga never worked the same for me after I had a baby. So I don't practice right. too much mm -hmm. yoga asana these days. I thought you were still, I mean, you must have been come back recently from Brazil, right? I thought you were. I came there. back seven years ago. Okay. Okay. And so, right. So simply just the, the form didn't work simply because you had a baby and you didn't feel like your body was the same or... Can you say more well, about I that? I was never in... I was never into doing series as... As such, um, if, if anyone who's practiced with Richard, you know, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of leeway for exploration within this series. Um, I'm not really someone who thinks that doing repetitive movements with my body over and over and over again is really that interesting. And I really love creativity. So like to me to repeat the same thing, both I'm a rolfer. So both from a biomechanical perspective and also just from an artistic perspective, um, I love, and as a teacher, you know, I taught yoga full time for 15 years. Sequencing is like my great love. Like I love sequencing. And maybe that's because I came from Vinny Yoga and I knew how to sequence chanting with posture, with breath, you know, with pranayama within the practice. So I did it because I, I'm, I, I also feel that there's a lot of value in diving into something. So I've, I've also dove into Advaita Vedanta and had a guru and went fully into that type of systemic philosophy, but not because I really believe, quote unquote, believed it. I didn't realize that that's also really dangerous to do with your mind that like to 
I thought I could do it just as an experiment. Like, well, why do I have to believe anything? I can just go into it because that's how you learn. And I wanted to, to learn. So, okay, I'll do that. And so it was kind of the same with Ashtanga. Like I, I actually went to Mysore at one point. I'd never gone to India for yoga asana. I'd always gone for devotion and meditation, but I bought the whole thing about you're only a real yogi if you do Ashtanga and you're only a real Ashtanga if you go to Mysore. So I I did that and then I got injured. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I respect the form and I, um, but I also looked at the people that I knew that were doing it and doing the different forms of yoga over 30, 40, 50 years and where their energetic systems were and where their physical bodies were. And I was like, I don't, that's not what I'm looking for. And it's all, it also didn't appeal to my womanhood at all. And after having a baby, that became even more exaggerated. Like this practice has nothing to do with being a woman. It's not offering me anything in terms of how I want to show up to my child and what my child needs from me. Because I would just be spaced out after practice all the time. I thought I was getting kind of enlightened. I thought the spaciness was like, oh, like I'm I'm kind of spiritual, good, good you know? Yeah, yeah. Until I had a baby and I was like, wow, this is she she needs me to be like here and present and relational. And I hadn't learned that in practice yet. So the work you do in trauma wasn't related to your yoga practice or or do you find it, did, did it start in the yoga or even as an antithesis, you know, against the system you were learning or, you know, how does that segue into, into the book and, you know, and what you're doing now in terms of, well, kind of reawakening the person to, to their own kind of historical baggage? Mm-hmm. Well, I came to yoga because of my own trauma. So the reason I went to a yoga studio when I was 19 was because I was sexually assaulted and I was, my world was turned upside down and I was trying to figure out if I could take care of myself and who I was and what the rules were. And so I, on the same week, I tried rock climbing and yoga and I was terrified on the rock. So I stuck with yoga. yoga. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so I, I feel that yoga absolutely can help, um, us reckon with trauma and to the, in my definition of trauma, it's the same in yoga as a samskara. It's a past impression. It's a vas. It's the, it's the things that are imprints that we carry forward and then don't allow us to show up in the present moment without everything that we're carrying with us. But in yoga, we're continually trying to sift through and parse those out to get to the central channel movement, which is something that Richard teaches so beautifully. And because it's silent in general, and because it's so much about don't get into your personal story in quotes, uh, a lot of times we can just replicate a parasympathetic freeze state. And we don't know we're doing it because it's more positive than the sympathetic parasympathetic freeze state that we were in when we were traumatized. So my experience was that I was, I mean, I was practicing hours and hours a day. And, and I mean, anyone who's studied with Richard knows like the Mysore room, uh, Richard's Mysore room is like you, it looks like we're on slow-mo, which really works for me because I like practicing slow. But I mean, I was there from like 6.30 to 8.45 every morning. So two hours and 15 minutes, sometimes just that for just primary, like not even like primary and second, like just primary was like two hours and 15 minutes. You should, I mean, you should have seen me when I went to Mysore and it was like, I had 40 minutes to go through that shit. I was like, okay, I don't even know how to do this. Uh, So 
I was practicing and then I was teaching three or four classes a day. So I was just, it was just yoga all the time for me for about 10 years. Um, I was, every time I was practicing, I would get myself, it felt like I would get my head above water, but I was using my practice almost like an antidepressant or like a medication. And I didn't realize it because I had never lived not in that state. So I was used to living in a somewhat confused and disoriented state, even though I was super functional. I mean, I have a really strong intellect. I went to a great college. I graduated first in my class. No one from the outside would have thought that necessarily. And in fact, people thought, no, you're really spiritual because I can hold a lot, hold a lot of space. But all of that space holding was really this parasympathetic down regulation and, and a, a real ambivalence about the participating in the material world. So it's kind of coalescing. So once I learned somatic tools and I was working in my own, using somatic experiencing to help myself stabilize my own nervous system, that also was kind of like when I met Richard and everything sort of opened up and like, oh, wow, this is where this fits and this is where that fits. And then I went to rolfing school, same thing, anatomy. It was like, oh, this is what we're like, this is what's happening in yoga then when I went to somatic experiencing school, it was like, oh, this is what we're doing with our nervous system. And this is why this is working or not working. Do, do you, would you reckon um, to give a little definition or kind of backtrack on the somatic experiencing for people that don't like me? Yeah. Um, aren't, aren't completely clear on that. And was Richard doing that? Is that what you're saying? So you're saying you no. found that in the... No. Okay. Right. In Boulder, I found it. But no. I mean, Richard knows a lot about... Um, Dr. Rolf in structural integration because Dr. Rolf lived in Boulder in the 80s. And so a lot of people, you know, he's definitely influenced by Dr. Rolf. Okay, and Peter okay, Levine, I didn't know that. Right. Who's the founder of Somatic yes, Experience, yeah, yeah. okay, was right. a student of Dr. Rolf. So Peter Levine, he says that he learned a lot of what he knows about body reading from Dr. Rolf because she was a notorious like system reader. So Peter Levine, who's the founder of somatic experiencing in the early seventies, he was at Esalen, you know, late sixties, he's at Esalen with Dr. Rolf, early seventies, he's with Moshe Feldenkrais, with um, Wilhelm Reich, with, uh, you know, all the Stanislav Grav, all the human potential movement that's happening in Esalen at the time. He's in Berkeley, he's doing a PhD in neurobiology, something like that. And what's happening at the time is this, these studies about trauma and there's some, psychiatrists that are sending him clients that are like having panic attacks because he was doing hypnotherapy because Erickson was in Berkeley around that time as well. So a lot of people knew Ericksonian hypnosis. Well, he has this woman come to him. She's been having panic attacks. He says, great, I'm going to like take her into a deep relaxation. He starts taking her into the relaxation and she starts having a panic attack. And he's like, oh shit, I'm making this worse instead of better. And in that moment, he had a shamanic vision of a tiger coming out of the wall. And so he just said to her, there's a tiger coming after you run. And so she starts running and her, I mean, she's, I think she's laying down or sitting, but her limbs start to move and then she settles and he watches her system start to move and shake and then settle and then move and then settle. And at the end of the session, neither of them kind of knew what happened. He was just sort of following something that arose in the moment but she never had any panic attacks again. And they thought she was having panic attacks because she was a graduate student and she was really stressed. But they ended up doing a couple more sessions together. And in these other sessions that they did together, 
she remembered an earlier time in her life, like in, in like age five or six, where she was under general anesthesia. And one of the things that we know in somatic experiencing and trauma is that the body is recording things that the on a different track than the mind. So in general anesthetic, your mind and your brain are anesthetized, but your body is not a lot. And so the body still had a fight or flight response in it. And until that energy is allowed to complete itself, uh, we don't actually heal. And so that flight energy of like, I need to get out of here, like someone's going to cut me open, get me out of here, was still in her body. And it was manifesting in the present moment as a panic attack, which of course, there was plenty of mental reasons to be like, yeah, you're doing a master's thesis, that's stressful, da, da, da. But actually, it was just her body from an earlier state trying to complete itself. So based on that work, and then watching wild animals, so most wild animals don't experience trauma and they experience all kinds of harrowing things. You know, you see lions with scratches on their face and, you know, they, they go through all kinds of natural disasters just like we do, but they don't tend to experience trauma, which is holdovers from those past experiences. And so, um, over the past now, wow, almost 50 years, because the only reason I know that I was born in 74 and that's around when Peter's doing this original stuff. Um, that's the field that's been evolving is, well, why do, what does the body register and how is that working? And so in somatic experiencing, we listen, just like in yoga, you're reading the body and you're reading all of these different languages that the body speaks as well, right? The body speaks in sensations, the body speaks in emotions, the body speaks in images, and we're helping to coordinate those experiences so that it becomes like a coherent expression. But as you said, don't you think that oftentimes yoga tends to pacify what needs to be expressed in terms of a kind of, you know, it like can. laying a, a suppressant or a comfort blanket on the top of something that maybe needs to come out? That yoga is, a, a little, you know, in the way that it's maybe, or we take it as a kind of quietest approach to... Um, you know, it to can. Not have to, yeah. And I think that's why for me... Why, do, um, why might it not? Or how, how could it not? How could it be practiced that it wouldn't do that? I mean, without kind of getting up and running around the room and shaking and, and, and you know... But maybe that could be okay. I mean, running around the room is extreme. But, and, and also, like, no one ever runs around the room in my sessions. as That's never happened before. But there could be... So, I mean, this is very... It's very simple, actually. Um, if we're in sitting posture... And we're, you know, let's say we're Sukhasana. Um, and we start to notice there's some kind of deeper organic movement that's happening. So a movement that's moving us that we're not doing, like our, our body is moving us, that we allow for that. And that we don't hold ourselves still against that. Um, there's oftentimes, uh, there'll be some kind of a rocking that comes in. That's the system's attempt at organizing itself. Instead of being like, oh, I, I, the best thing to do is to be still, is like, no, the best thing to do is listen to what's happening. Doesn't that beg the question in the first place, though? Because if we're frozen, I mean, from my own experience, if we're frozen, then you don't really have a connection to your own body. So, I mean, you know, how, how do you get someone from that point where they can't sense, you know, the sensations of the body and they're using the, the say, especially the Ashtanga practice is a perfect formula because you're repeating that groove and you're just like, you know, almost kind of drumming it down into you to awaken the sensations which are actually there, which you wish one is seeking on a daily level to many ways probably repress. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's possible, but I think, I mean, my experience was basically that when I would go in the Ashtanga room, at least the ones that I was practicing in, I was really organizing myself in a very specific way. And for instance, I never had hardly any emotions come up. In my daily life, I'm very emotional. Um, in the Ashtanga room, I was, I never, I don't even remember, like maybe once or twice, like crying, but over years and yeah, years and years. Most people would resonate with that, I think. Yes. But what happened to me was then I went and had a guru experience and I got my ego like freaking decimated and I didn't have a strong ego to begin with. And then it was like I got cracked open and there was nothing I could do. I couldn't even be in the room without crying. And then I recognized, wow, there's this whole set of social rules that are going on in here. Yoga is supposed to be radical. Yoga was something that everyone who was anti-establishment and ant that's what the sadhus were doing. They were saying, I don't agree with this hierarchical Brahminical bullshit. I'm going to figure it out myself. Like I'm, I can get to God. I don't need to pay you to get to God. I'm going to do that myself. That's what yoga really is. Yoga is like, I am the experiment and I have everything that I need to connect to the divine. And there's nothing that you can hold over to me, hold over me that means that I can't have that access. So then I thought, well, why am I going into a room where there's all these unspoken agreements about like all of these things that make a hierarchy and that, you know, in, in the Ashtanga practice is kind of inherently hierarchical. And that's, and people, I mean, in, in Boulder, it really wasn't so much that way. And I always, I, I wasn't too caught up in it because I didn't really didn't care about going farther, quote unquote. Right. Um, but Nevertheless, it's it, it's so extreme. And, and the problem with the extremeness of it is that it appeals to this, number one, our puritanical um, conditioning that says there's something inherently wrong with us and, and that we're just trying to be better and more pure, um, that the best thing is to be the purest, which automatically sets up a split between anything that's um, female because anything female is going to be dirtier and earthier and, you know, bloodier and all of it. So we've already got that going mm -hmm. on. Right. And then also <laughs> we've got the intensity. So we live in a culture addicted to intensity. Look at what's going on. People are ultra running and going to anywhere across the world to do the newest psychedelic it, to get the there. Irony, yeah. The irony of the is, is that you have more sensation, which actually numbs any sensation, right? It's kind of... Yeah. And you require so much to feel anything, right? Like you require like, oh, well, if I don't do my practice every day, I don't feel okay. And there was something at some point when I saw people in my life that are 60 and 70 years old, and they're still freaking doing second a series. I'm like, why? Why would like, why is that even remotely interesting? Well, because you're using it as a palliative thing. And you're, you're unwilling also to recognize a life cycle that like we change over a life cycle. And, but it's hard because if you're so attached to it, that's what's, that's what your identity is. So what does practice mean for you? What does the, the you know, the idea of method or practice mean for you? I mean, those people, you yeah. could say that you could say they're doing that. And they might, they might beg to differ. They might say that they're pursuing something in deeper and experiential awareness or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, I think we all, we have to define it for ourselves and, and I, and I have done all kinds of different yoga. When I was in Brazil, I did a kind of yoga called Cayute yoga that was really, um, it's kind of based on polarity work and 
it, the closest thing it looks like is sort of yin, but it's, it's more structural than that. Um, right now I'm doing martial arts. So right now I'm, um, starting with jujitsu and, um, kickboxing and, and that's really based on somewhat on novelty, right? So the nervous system really appreciates novelty. Um, sameness can register as familiar, but novelty is the thing that's going to create new possibilities. Um, and also I need contact. So I need like, and my, um, and I can feel like with my muscle tone and my bone strength, it's like, I need those things where like there's compression to it. So I, I have elastic connective tissue. Probably most of the people that are listening do, because if you're into yoga, you probably have more elastic connective tissue because it makes yoga easier for you. Otherwise we'd be sprinting or something. Just um, go go over that tiny little synopsis of that part of the book. That, That was a good part. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So the elastic, as opposed to a different type of connective tissue, wasn't it? Yeah. So connective tissue is made up of collagen and elastin fibers. And everybody has some collagen fibers and some elastin fibers. And the collagen is what makes the fibers tighter. And the elastin is what makes the fibers looser. And it's a spectrum. So some people are super, super collagenous. Those are the people that you could have in practice. And like, you have to like, you know, lean your back up against the wall and use your foot to give them an adjustment because there's so much resistance to it. And of course there can be lots of other things. There could be injuries, there could be trauma, there Mm. could be all kinds of things, but connective tissue plays a part in it. And we're born with a certain composition of connective tissue based usually on where our ancestors are geographically, right? So if your ancestors are closer to a pole, you need more space in the connective tissue because that's where fat lives and fat stores are what's going to keep you warm. So, um, and you know, this, this isn't a perfect map, right. but it's on the spectrum of super 100 is mm-hmm. super collagenous and zero is super elastinous, which is, you know, the closer you are to the equator. Taffy. Uh, then I am very taffy-like. And therefore, taffy, you know, if you think about spaghetti, you take spaghetti out of a box, throw it in boiling water, and the spaghetti cooks. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to take the spaghetti out of a pot, dry it, and put it back in a box. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to create organization in a structure that's got so much elastin elasticity, it's not impossible, but it's harder. And so after I had a baby, when you are pregnant and you give birth, you have a lot of relaxing in your tissues because your ligaments need to stretch in order to let the baby come out. That that hormonal flood also creates more elasticity. So then if you have a prolapse, you're, you're predisposed for like a prolapse because all of the suspensory ligaments are also getting stretched like taffy. And to put them back together, what do you need? Well, you need collagen. Oh, I was a vegetarian because I was a yogi and I thought being a vegetarian made me be- a better person also. So I thought, okay, so for 20 years, I was a vegetarian and then I already had elastinous connective tissue and then I did lots and lots of yoga all the time. I mean, it, literally, Adam, if I never stretched my hamstrings again in my life, I could still bend over and put my palms flat on the floor. And yeah. like, I'm, and I, I yeah. never have to stretch them again. I know. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I agree. I, uh, and I had the same thing. I'm going to have kind of exactly the same experience. 
vegetarian diet, very stretchy already. And then, you know, like obviously it attracts those, you know, you don't generally, I mean, you do find people that are attracted to yoga that are just, you know, just really struggle with it. But generally, you know, like people that are into yoga have somewhat a predisposition. So, you know, they're, they're somewhat good at it in inverted commas, right? So, yes. So, but I mean, I, to your point, I think you can find a way to find compression in the practice. And I teach from that perspective rather than, you know, it, kind of hypermobility, you know, you can do it a different way. You can stretch towards yourself. You can pull yourself together. But I do understand that. And uh, But I wanted you to speak. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I and wanted I mean, you to I speak do, that. I think I had the best teachers yeah, in the well, world. You, you know, you had a pretty good teacher there. Yeah, I have to say, you can't, you can't be um, denied. But it doesn't, it doesn't, yes, you can do lots of things with the practice. But, but you know, what the bottom line to me is, when I was a dancer, you couldn't keep me out of the dance studio. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be there. When I was doing yoga, you couldn't keep me out of the yoga studio. That's where I wanted to be. I loved it. I, that, that passion for it, that fire, that's why I was there. And when that went away, now I want that some other way. I don't want to, I don't want my mind to tell me this is good for me and this is what I should be doing. And this is, you're only a real this if you do it this way. No. What am I doing yoga for? I'm doing yoga for that connection to the divine, uh, for a sense of really deep enjoyment and like a way to experience, ex experience this life through this body. And so I, that's what I'm devoted to. And of course, there's some, you know, it's so layered, um, but I think that it's important that we know, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say your response is familiar to me and it's, you know, it's there in the book, it's on the podcast and it's, it seems like a lot of your journey is about self-assertion, right? That you, you know, from, from a place where I think you say you, you know, felt frozen and, you know, you didn't know how, you know, how to, to deal with, with the, the circumstances that happened. And a lot of the kind of what, what I resonate with now is it's the kind of, yes, it's a quite assertive way of being rather than the kind of yoga way of being, which is, you know, can often be framed in the opposite way, right? the fact that you've gone to do the martial arts and, you know. Yeah. And I don't want to say that I think, I mean, I think there are people who use this practice in, in a way that works for them and that they genuinely love and they want to go back to. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just noticed like what health means to me is our capacity to be fully present in every cell of our bodies. And to me, that's what enlightenment means. So for me, that's samadhi. Samadhi is when I go inside, I know where my own cervix is. When I go inside, I can feel the energy lines coursing through my system, through the nadis. And at some point, that the experiment of Ashtanga Yoga for me, I went to the place where I thought I wanted to go with it. And my own question became more about what does it mean to be in this world as a woman? And what does a, a feminine spiritual practice look like? And when I looked back, I'm so, I mean, I love BKS Iyengar. I was in, a, I've been in rooms with him. I love Deskachar. I love the yoga that I learned and I'm indebted to my teachers. I don't, the way that I see the world is framed through the lens of my own practice and my ability to map my own system. And I just was very surprised that after all those years of practice, when I sat in a room 
with a somatic practitioner and they said, so what are you noticing? And when I could tell them what I was noticing and then they would say, well, does that feel good? And I had no idea because I had trained myself out of any kind of preferences. And it was almost offensive, the question to me, because I thought like, I'm a practitioner, like I can handle anything. Of course I can tolerate pain. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, but who cares? Because lots of things are uncomfortable and I don't have a preference, right? Sukha or dukkha, like I'm right here in the middle. I'm like, I'm, and so in order for me to heal, which for me meant have access to more of my vitality, more of the time, and to feel like I want to engage in the material world, that I don't want to just endure the material world, but that it's important to me to contribute and that maybe I'm not better than, you know, I I've, my, I would have never said I'm better than other people because I practice, but I sort of felt like it. Like, sure. well, what are all these other people doing? <laughs> well, um, I mean, you said loads of things just in, in that point. I mean, what does a feminine spiritual practice look like? Um, how do you, I mean, you've said you, you know, you had this experience of trauma um, and like evidently you went through yoga, but it didn't really fully do the job, let's say. Um, you know, how did it look like to resolve? You know, like, is it as easy as you go through rest, rest, uh, you know, kind of sorry, fight or flight to rest and digest and then you're out, you know, is it, is it that, is, is it that polarized? Um, yeah. There's so many questions coming up for you. Um, Elliot, answer any of the above. (laughs) Yeah, so just, I'll get, I'll I'll go right back to that. Just to finish though. So when I sat with a somatic practitioner and and it was so hard for me to notice my sensations, I thought, well, this is weird because I do all day long. I'm making myself feel all kinds of sensations. But yet when I'm here still and someone's, I'm with somebody who's going to reflect or mirror something, I can't do it. That also um, just revealed a lot to me. And that's really common. Like you were saying that a lot, that if you're just so you can still be in a dissociative place and practice a physical practice. Cause most people go, well, somatic, I do yoga or I run or I do this. And it's like, yes, those can be somatic practices, but they're not necessarily. No, just cause you're doing it, just cause you're doing it, your body doesn't make it somatic. You know, the body is only yeah. a small part of your energy. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the third part. Uh, third, well, it's true. I mean, you know, like, yeah, it's understandable. I, I certainly felt that. Yeah, absolutely. But latterly speaking, having tried it for, you know, to resolve my own traumas for like, you know, the past 25 years, I can say that you have to do something more than just, you know, just yeah. do, just do Ashtanga yoga. Um, well, maybe you don't, maybe some people don't, but I do. Um, well, also your ambivalence with the spiritual, with the material world versus the spiritual world. I mean, how did that shift? So I suppose let's, you know, let's go back because I don't have a pen and paper. Um, what did I say first? Um, how, what does a feminine spiritual practice look like? I'm really intrigued by that. And I, you know, I'd be, I, yeah, I, I like that when you're writing, um, you know, the book is mm. a call, a call to the world, right? So I, I suppose it's a kind of riff on Peter Levine's in a way. I was thinking, you know, the kind of his, his taming the tiger, but you're actually kind of, and a lot of what you speak on in the book is, is to do with examples of particularly women that have come to you and getting them to actually voice, you know, voice and stand up for themselves rather than, you know, accept, rather than, you know, the, the idea of super duca that actually they need mm. to, you know, be volatile at points. They need to tell the, the you know, the cyclist crossing the bridge without that one with the, the woman's crossing the bridge. and Everything that yoga... So here's an interesting observation that came to me yesterday. I was thinking about kachari, kachari mudra, right? The one where you start to cut the frenulum and bring your tongue up behind your palate, right? So if you're listening, 
you know, it's in the, in the text that you bring your tongue and you place it way behind your soft palate and you can do it without cutting your frenulum. And it's kind of like the most internal that you could be, right? Like you're trying to get way into the center of your brain and get to a still point. And I thought, wow, that's like the exact opposite of what most women or people who don't have power need to be doing in the culture because we're already trained to do that. We're already trained to be quiet. We're already trained to not, to, to tolerate, to be kind, to be nice. All these spiritual teachings that are like, um, the Tarka Bhadana, Pratipaksha Bhavana, take the position of the other person, walk a mile in another person's shoes. That's how we're conditioned as females. And what's happening when we experience trauma is usually that we couldn't say what we needed to say. We couldn't make the movements we needed to make. We were overpowered, so we couldn't push somebody off of us or we're in overpowered by a doctor and we have a hard time telling them that we don't agree with what they're saying. And so we need to practice the wrathful deities, sticking your tongue out, the exact opposite of kachadi mudra, right? The opposite end of the chain where the tongue is like all the way out of the mouth. And so all of the practices that I learned in yoga were about containment, slowing down, and down regulation. It was about slowing your valve system down. And my work in the Call of the Wild and the Jaguar work that I do with women is about accelerating the valve system, accelerating even breath patterns in order to be able to handle more activation and eventually restore the self-protective mechanisms, the self-protective gestures that we all have, everybody has, but they've just become dormant because of conditioning, socialization, traumas, and sometimes spiritual practice because the spiritual practice is pushing something farther down rather than letting it come to the surface. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I think yoga practices when they were adopted in the mainstream cultures, first of all, in India, were obviously used for the, for the auspices of society, which never wants the individual to express themselves in a kind of radical way, right? So, you know, inevitably that side of the, 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 the idea of this, uh, you know, this equanimity and this quietism was, was accentuated. But as you say, the sadhus don't act like that, you know, in India, right? And, you know, and they're definitely a whole bunch of pretty kind of out there, wrathful kind of, uh, you know, uh, practices and deities and you know and tantra all the right hand tantra stuff you know but you know definitely as as yoga has been uh, you know subsumed in the west or you know outside india let's say um it's this this again just as we had in in, in with christianity this quietest idea of you know like yes you want to put yourself in the other part practice compassion in the, in the face of you know getting fucked over you know and all this stuff you know it's, it's kind of what i really liked about your book because like i was going to say before you know talk, talking to the girl who should have shouted at the the, the motor the, um, the the motor car that was you know pushing her off the bridge when she was cycling over you know and she she didn't you know and and or the person that was was kind of almost mugged at gunpoint and didn't do anything, you know, who could have had a different reaction, you know. And yeah, I mean, that really resonated with me. I mean, but how do you, how do you tutor that in someone without getting to, to the obvious polarity, I suppose was my next question, that they just go through a reaction and then they're, then they're kind of unlocked again or, or, or and, and could it, and could it tip to the other side? Because I think a lot of people have the feeling that if I open the Pandora's box, all hell will be let loose. And, you know, um, I think my mother, to be one, if you're listening, mum, and, you know, and, and, and I won't be able to contain my anger having suppressed it so mm-hmm. much. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And it's definitely what people are worried about. Um, it's we're worried that, like, if we finally look at the the thing that we've 
think is the problem that it will overtake us and we might not survive it. Or if we finally allow for an impulse, um, that that impulse will, you know, we'll never be able to turn it off again. Um, and the way that this somatic experiencing um, work, I'm also a sexological body worker, which informs my work in the work in the call of the wild, but it's, it's a tight, it's called titration, which means a little bit at a time. Um, you c- if you are an Ashtanga and you're listening, the way we titrate Ashtanga is that it's traditionally Mysore and people get one pose at a time, right? So you're building on something. You're not just doing the whole thing all at once. You get a pose, you do that for a little bit till your system adapts to that, till your nervous system understands it, and then you add something else on. So, um, it's, it's not, I would say that it's a simple process, but it's not an easy process. It operates on simple principles that um, I was, that I hope that in the book, The Call of the Wild, I gave, um, you know, I I consider myself to be a messenger of complex ideas and making them practical so that like we don't have to understand all of polyvagal theory. We can understand the parts of it that apply yeah, yeah. to daily life. <laughs> yeah, and you, re- and you really do. Yeah, yeah. And polyvagal theory is very complicated if you're listening. So, yeah, I mean, definitely read Kimberly's book. It, it does simplify it. But it doesn't it. have but- to be. And it doesn't have to be in terms of what's useful. But you asked me earlier about if it's as simple as going from fight or flight to rest yes, and digest. Yes, the, 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 the people now are reacting to this idea that it's, it's not simple, it's not a polarity, yeah, as Steve, no, Stephen Porges is saying. You know. No, everything that you said, basically, that you the, the choices you offered me and like what you said about your mom, it's all black or white thinking. It's like, I'm either all this way or I'm all that way. Um, that's trauma thinking. Trauma thinking is it's all or nothing. I only have these two choices. I'm either this or I'm that. And what we're trying to do is open the palette of expression. So for instance, if I'm, um, if we're talking about a situation, because these little, for me, trauma is like a scratch on a record. And these little scratches both happen all the time and we're carrying forward with us. So it doesn't have to be such a big thing that we think of as like like a car accident, although that could be something. In the process of repairing that in our nervous system, sometimes we need to make the physical gesture. Like a lot of times when I work with women, what ends up happening is their hands come up to their shoulders and they are pushing somebody away and saying no, or I don't want this, or get away from me, or, or stop. And that just happens to be a gesture that comes up a lot because people felt that they couldn't say stop or they froze and nothing happened. So a freeze is a parasympathetic dorsal response. And to repair a freeze, you need connection. So when you asked me earlier, well, what would it take to make yoga receptive to this kind of repair? Connection is a part of it. And that used to happen in practice. You used to have an interpersonal relationship with your teacher. What came to happen is that uh, as yoga teachers, we're not trained in interpersonal social dynamics. We don't know anything about transference or counter-transference and all of the psychological things that get brought into the spiritual practice. And so it gets very confusing. And plus, there's power that's involved. But in connection, someone can be with you in the freeze and you can slowly thaw out of the freeze until you, till your system shows you, oh, 
in that situation, I would have gotten out of there and this is how I would have done it. Or I would have said this. And it's often much less dramatic than it sounds. Like sometimes I do a lot of birth um, trauma repair. And a lot of times the things that women wish they would have said or their system was primed to say but couldn't say because they were overpowered is I would like more time. Um, I'm not sure about this. Can I have more time? Um, you know, it's not fuck you, asshole doctor. It's rarely that. It's usually something very elemental. Like, I could you could you leave the room for a moment and come back? Or um, sometimes it's I need another nurse. Um, and as far as and sometimes we can complete these things in our imagination. So. Um, just, you know, I'm sure people listening know about mirror neurons and know about how a lot of times, you know, we can do full yoga practices imagining them and have the benefits of them in the rest of the system when our mind is really focused, right? So we can also, when we're in the right level of our nervous system, we can complete some of these in an, in our imagination. Some of them need to actually happen. And so I've worked in my book, I tell the story of the person who gave me the jaguar image and why I came to understand that predator energy is so important in trauma repair. Uh, but in that space, um, I realized that I really needed to be in the room with a male practitioner because I would be physically overpowered and I needed to have that sense of physical overpowerment to see if I could still activate my self-protective ge gestures, right? Because in the wild, this happens all the time. Like, and you know, rabbits get away from wolves. Um, there's all kinds of scenarios where prey survives a predator or fights back with a predator. And so I, I felt I needed that experience of project of healthy projection to be able to push against. And, you know, same with when I'm parenting, like sometimes I need to, uh, you know, dominate my daughter so she feels physically dominated and she can push back against it but she knows who's in charge let's save the question about your practices your fem feminine practices to the end and let's just come in because there's so much ground you cover in your book let's just come to the part the last chapter where you talk about models mm. of models of relationship um and that i found actually if you would just do me the the the, the um the benef benefit of explaining that a little bit because I found it confusing. So I think you had three models of relationship when the when the child comes back into the room. Oh, attachment. Yes, yes, yes. I found that oh, really okay. I found it really interesting. I mean, in, also in relationships, thinking about relationships to the teacher and you know being allowed the mm. you know the space around relationship or interpersonal relationships. And as you pointed out, interpersonal relationships don't really happen in Ashtanga, right? At all, because you've got to be quiet, you've got to be on your mat, you know, you can't walk around generally. Well, some people do, but, you know, it's not really the thing to do, right? And, and yeah, I mean, in every natural, uh, you know, let's say indigenous society, I mean, I don't think they would have ever had such a linear kind of um, devoid of uh, practice of social contact, right? No, it got to a point for me where, you know, I went to Brazil, I came back, to the States, I went to a yoga room and we're all in Utita Hasha Padangustasana and the room's packed. It's in New York, you know, it's sort of like mat to mat. And there's somebody holding their toe and our toes are practically touching and we're looking at each other. We're like facing each other. And 
the person's not even like the person's looking through me or right past me. And I just burst out laughing. I'm like, what are we all doing here? Like what's happening yeah, in this place? That's, ki- that's like, kind of crazy. We're pretending that we're not all together. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, you must have known when you went to Mysore, I had the experience that that is not the case when, you know, when Indians were practicing, right? I mean, if you go, like, I mean, yeah. everyone tells the story of going in the afternoon, in, you know, when they teach, you know, it's taught the Indians and, you know, and it's a completely different story, right? They're walking around, they're talking, they have a little chat, you know, and, and that I think was the original experience that David Williams walked into when he, you know, went in the early 70s, you know, that it was, so I don't know what's, what's become of us, but. Um, well, I you know, think the, then the, there was the, hardly anyone there. Well, I don't know. There were a lot of Indians there at the time. They were coming. Oh, really? was, yeah, they, he was teaching a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of Indian students. Yeah. And they were going around the wall, um, being, you know, Manju was teaching them handstands at the side. And so it was, it was kind of chaotic, to be honest. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, that's more the way that Iyengar talk, I think, you know, in that, you know, everyone's doing all different things in the room. Um, yeah. But that's a kind of a bit of an aside, really, but a good point. And a real, um, can you explain the models of attachment? Because just even to me personally, because yes. I really enjoyed that part of the book. Okay. Well, this is like a real quick and dirty because attachment theory has got a long history and there's a lot of people who are experts in it. And I'm not a psychologist, but... Um, you know, you have a knack of explaining things simply though, which is... Yeah, just... Here's the basics. And I in the book, I, I use the framework from Stan Tatkin, the, um, how he sort of has brought it into adult attachment. So attachment theory is based on how mothers and babies attach to one another. And the basic experiment is called the strange situation. It was developed by Mary Ainsworth in the 50s. And she did the experiment both in in Uganda and Baltimore. So the the basics, it's, it's a complex thing, but the basics of it are a mother and child go into a room, the mother leaves, a stranger comes in, a stranger leaves, the mother comes back and the mother leaves. And then the researcher watches both how the baby's reacting to those comings and goings and how the mother is also reacting to the comings and goings. The reason that this has anything to do with my book is that attachment is the social nervous system level. And polyvagal theory brought the social nervous system into our nervous system understanding. So it's not just fight or flight and rest or digest, but we have a whole other tier in the autonomic system called the social nervous system, which is the orienting apparatus in the neck, throat, voice. It's the superficial front line from the heart. So uh, it happens at 18 inches, how a mother would look at a baby while nursing. And uh, what Stan Tatkin... So there was a few, there's a few outcomes of these strange situations and they were put in categories. Securely attached baby. When the mom left, the baby was slightly distressed. When the stranger came in, the baby could play by itself and then eventually play a little bit with the stranger. And then the stranger left. And when the mom came back, the baby was happy to see the mom and the baby went to the mom and the mom was also happy to see the baby. There was another type of baby that was extremely distressed when the mom came that never really did well with this stranger and was distressed when the mom came back, but was like, you know, barnacling on the mom, like, oh my God, like, thank God you're back type of thing. And then there was another kind of a baby that basically was indifferent when the mom left, pretty indifferent when the stranger came back and then cold shouldered the mom when she came back eventually, like, I don't even care. And I'm going to turn away from you. 
So the baby that was had a lot of distress with the comings and goings, Stan Tatkin gave that style name a wave. And the baby that was um, indifferent or showing that they didn't care, he named an island. And then the baby that had a, a modicum like, yeah, I notice you're leaving and I notice when you come back, but I'm okay. I can be okay. I can learn to be okay. That baby was called an island, which is secure attachment. So those things carry over to how we deal with relationship. I would say, um, you know, so securely attached people in adulthood, they're the people that they're usually not on the dating market because they have securely attached relationships and they can tolerate a lot of comings and goings without feeling there's going to be a relationship rupture. And what are they called? They're not called the island. Yeah, no, they're the... Um, two, two are called the island right now. One, we've got the wave, the islands. I do remember this coming back now. The wave, yeah. the wave, the island, but there's a third one, which is the securely attached and what, and they're not the island. Yeah. They're the rock. Um, the anchor. The anchor. Right. Okay. So similar. Right. Okay. So they're the anchor. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got the yeah. island and then you've got the wave. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's and really so interesting the... stuff. And they always, you know, like I think like everybody just think, oh, what am I then? You know, where do I? Well, like, it's usually pretty it's obvious. Is it? Oh, I thought um, it maybe, could it be a mix? It can be a mix over our lifetime, um, but in general, it's pretty down the line. Um, so if you have a fear of abandonment, you're usually a wave. Like, for instance, if you send a text and then you panic when you don't get a text back, or okay, yeah. um, the more that someone distances from you, the closer you get and yeah, the, more, yeah. the more you seek after it. So it's kind of like the bigger the wave gets, the farther the island goes. Right, yeah. And I think, I think also... I think also the wave and the island often find themselves together in a relationship, don't they? 100. Mm, mm. And so do collagenous connective tissue and elastinous oh, really? connective tissue. Interesting. And oh, so said... do people who are, tend to be sympathetically dominant tend to pair with parasympathetically dominant because it's, you know, somebody's expressing that thing that's hard for us to express. But the wave and island thing, that's, that's fantastic. a big clue because it's... Um, Unless an island is interested in working on relationship and knows that they want relationship, um, it's a heartbreak situation for a wave because islands are, they don't, and also how they behave sexually. So like a wave is likely to have sex really soon in a relationship to create bonding, to, to try to hope that that person's not going to go. But an island can have sex and not be very uh, emotionally attached in having sex. And so when that happens, you're likely to end up in a situation where one person is getting is thinking that there's something that's more serious going on and the other person is like ready to get out. Um, and, you know, I think in a song of yoga, you find a lot of avoidant types because it's all about self. It's self everything. Right. Like I can I can become enlightened all on my own. And like the more restrictive I am, the better that I am. You know, I got to go to bed early and I've got to eat all these special things and I can't eat this because then Mari Chasana D is hard tomorrow. It's like so easy. Get it off jail card, isn't it? For actually kind of like, and then, you know, I mean, all Stephen Paul just talks about is kind of co-regulation, right? Like finally, you know, to do any kind of work and reconcilement, self-reconcilement, you've got to kind of, reconcile amongst others right kind of locate your place right. and context within the society which we we can't avoid but live right we've never been anything other than the social animals so the important thing is that people 
Cause like I'm a wave and I was, you know, we always hope that we wouldn't pass on our crap to our kids. Right. That's part of why we're practicing. Um, but yeah, my daughter is a wave too. And, uh, that's, but whatever we are, it's not like anything. It's not like a sentence. So the, there's other aspects to, to each of the types, like waves tend to be artists, tend to be creatives, tend to be poets, musicians, and also healers. Islands tend to be, you know, we really love their self-possession and their independence and their, you know, their self-referential um, stuff. And we can become, we can all become securely attached and we can practice secure attachment. Secure attachment has to do with comings and goings. So we can practice it in real time. How we enter a room. Do we greet people when we enter? Do we make eye contact? Including those that are closest to us. Have we become so habituated that we don't look up from our phone when our partner comes in the room? The simple thing of acknowledging someone in the comings and goings, that's repairing secure attachment. It goes a long way. It does. Really, yeah. Yeah. And especially now in the age of social media. Yeah. When... Yeah, you do find that people are just looking at their phone and it, yeah, it, it, it can be really, yeah, it definitely can be hurtful in terms of um, social interactions, right? And you don't notice it necessarily and when you do it. sometimes we, exactly, sometimes we don't notice it. So I tell this story in the book where I, I realized that I walked into my parents' house and my dad didn't look up at me and I thought, in the meaning I made out of that was like, oh, he's, he's disgusted by me or like my dad's disapproving of me. And then I realized when I learned more about the nervous system, oh, my dad's really collapsed and he's in like a dorsal state. So the fact that he's not looking up because he's like curled over and looking down is about him. It's not, it's not even in response to me. It's just, it's his nervous system. But when his system does that, this is the meaning that I'm making. So I have to just say, that like, hey, dad, when I come in, would you mind greeting me? Because when you don't, I it makes me feel like you don't approve of me. Even though I'm not saying you don't, I'm not saying like, what the fuck, dad? Why aren't you looking up <laughs> from your phone? I'm think, saying like, this is how I feel in that moment. To, to draw a full circle around the whole thing, I think a certain amount of self inquiry you get in the kind of, um, let's say, um, internally uh, internal practices like yoga is relevant to that capacity because if it was all about outward you know kind of looking and and you could easily just project your all your stuff on your dad but it's you know but it's actually you know rather than looking at yourself and realizing actually that's a projection why you know actually he's a, his own person having his own experience has nothing to do with me right like it's not about me you know it's about him and his own state right and i think so you know i mean i often um you know play devil's advocate with the yoga thing and you know <laughs> having taught it for 25 years whether it's you know that you know whether it's helpful or not ultimately you know but i think you know the level of self-awareness you can you you can potentially grasp is is very relevant in situations like that where it could all be simply a projection of well he's disgusted at me well actually it's nothing to do with you <laughs> like get yourself out you know probably you know get yourself out of the picture and have compassion to have compassion to the person that's in front of you you know as well yeah and i think you know, what we're talking about is, a, is very layered and nuanced and there's a lot of coexisting truths, you know, or as Richard would call them, contradictory opposites. Is like at the same time that we say, oh, that person is, that's them, that's not me. We're also talking about co-regulation, which is all about like, there's something between us also. So of course, the way the other person is responding is going to have something to do with me. And I find that in the beginning of the yoga practice and maybe for a while, 
there's, there is an obsession about self and we're not practicing relationship. We don't learn relationship skills and they are skills, right? If I spend as much, I mean, I was just talking about it the other day. I was like, I think I'm interpersonally deficient. Like, I think I need like, but what do you do? Like, if you, you know what you're going to, now I know if I go to yoga, what I'm going to get, but like, what, where do you go? Where's the dojo for like learning to, to tell yeah, somebody yeah. how you feel? Well, also, I think a lot of people, yeah, want to come to yoga for that, that interpersonal relationship, right? Especially nowadays. And, and in a modern yoga studio, you don't, you don't, you don't have the capacity certainly to practice that really, you know, and definitely a practice isn't going into the change rooms, feeling kind of shame and, you know, you know, and anxiety in the change rooms, then coming out, feeling the same in the class, you know, like for work, right. And you're all on your mats mm-hmm. and then, you know, like the teachers, this hierarchy at the front, you know, and you, you, you know, the kind of co-regulation isn't happening in the yoga room, is it? Um, which is a whole nother podcast. I mean, I think just like with Liz Cook, who I know you've talked to, um, I will have to do a part two because you've got so much stuff that is very interesting to say. And um, yeah, and we haven't really done it justice for the, for the, for the scope of this podcast, but uh, read the book, everyone. Um, it's a wonderful book um, called To the Wild and uh, we will link you to it on the podcast. Um, can you just say to wrap it up? Uh, yeah. What does a, a feminine spiritual practice look like for you? What, what do you do uh, now as a practice? Uh, well, it's not one thing. It's responsive, and I think on our next podcast, we could also talk about just disillusionment. You know, I think I've, I've gone through quite a bit of disillusionment, and so um, I'm, I'm circling back to what that means. I mean, a femi- feminine spirituality means that spirituality is everywhere. Um, it's in, in, so in some ways, I guess you could categorize it more as like a tantric worldview, um, not that that, you know, when I studied a so it's not gender I, it's not specific, I, is it gender specific or not? Well, I think it's, it's saying that the body matters mm, and not right. because it's an instrument that you're making do things. It's because it's, it, uh, that spiritual isn't pure and it's not crown chakra is not just moving energy from bottom to top, but actually we have to pull energy from top to bottom. We have to come down into the actual pelvis and actually, especially as women, um, root the energy down. Uh, I think, you know, if you could think about what would a temple look like that was designed by women for women, what would that temple look like? It would look very different probably than a lot of the practice spaces that we, that we're in. And, and I don't know if we know what it is. I think it's mysterious. It's, and, and I'm not, and I also don't think it's in 100% contrast to a yoga studio. Like I part, it's something that is, it's not linear. And so I don't, you know, I, I love Umadin's more Thule. I love the book Yoni Shakti. She's English. Um, and uh, I think I fall somewhere in between because I love to I love to get in an Iyengar studio and line it all up, and I feel like I'm in you know a ballet class. Like I I love to do that kind of thing, and I think there's just it's something that's more fluid and cyclical and less rigid. Like it's definitely not something that I do every single day, six days a week, and I have to do it this way or that means that I'm not a real practitioner. Mm. That was actually a good answer in its circularity yeah <laughs> all right well we've done an hour look 
give me a just a round out. I mean, we'll do another one. We have to do another one. I'll, well, I'll talk to you after, so maybe you'll agree or you won't. But um, <laughs> it comes to see. But uh, just give for the re- for the uh, listeners, readers, whatever they are. Um, well, you know, just give some uh, little history about you. What, what's an inspiration? Do you have? I often ask this question. Give me an inspiration, something that inspires you. It could be a person, a place, and give me a pleasure. I'm not going to say guilty pleasure. Um, mm. Just give me something you like. Yeah. Just mm. yeah. Personal, personal um, facts. Well, I'm, I'm a huge lover of Brazil. So for me, when I went to India, I found a quality of devotion that I'd never felt anywhere. And then when I went to Brazil, I could not believe how much devotion I felt, but also an acceptance of the body and especially being in a female body. So I love Brazilian music. Um, I listen to... Emmy Pebe, which is like Brazilian popular music. I wrote my book listening to Brazilian music. Um, so the, that's very inspiring to me, the poetry of the music, the way that um, musicians are regarded and revered in Brazil as like true sort of prophets is so um, inspiring. And then uh, pleasures. Oh, well, I mean, I'm finding martial arts extremely pleasurable, just being in with other bodies and like bumping up against those bodies and having real time like contact and like a sense of my own strength. And I got in a spar the other day with this guy that I was like, holy moly, the guy came up to me with his arms and he was not the biggest person, although he was much bigger than me. But the way he looked at me, I just looked at him and I was like, whoa, I'm like, you're like a Jedi. And, uh, and the feeling that I had of being so like, I'm just so done. Like if this guy decided like I've got nothing was so like enlivening and terrifying, but also like, I want that, like, I want that center, whatever that is, like I'm here to, I'm here to learn that. So, um, that's feeling pleasurable because for the last four months, I've just felt I, I went through kind of a slander campaign and I lost a lot of energy kind of in trying to write myself with that. And so to be able to like have an impulse to try something new and to be in a room with other people that are also learning and farther along is just really pleasurable for me right now. That's the first martial arts, yeah. I went the other way around because I did Taekwondo and then never let it go into yoga. But yeah, the sparring, there's nothing like a sparring. Have you b- broken the blocks yet? Have they asked you to break? We ha- no, I'm, I'm doing um, Muay Thai. Right, okay, right. No, no knuckle breaking yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's hope we get a second one out of Kimberly and we should link you to the book, um, Call of the Wild. It's really an. Um, I don't say it lightly. It's a great book. And mention Kimberly also the uh, the Yoni book. People would be interested to hear that. The Yoni, who who was it? That- oh yeah, Yoni Shakti. Uh, it's Uma Dinsmore Tuli. Is that she's the author? Cool. Yeah, it's a yeah, brilliant. That, it's I like know, a bio. I know people will be on me for that. So okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, where can they find you? Um, I suppose you're it's eponymous. Uh, Kimberly the, uh, Johnson. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. So thank you very much for being on. Thank you. Thank you. Adios.